In this podcast, we take you with us on a journey about economics and investing. By being equipped with different perspectives, we strive to make better and more informed financial decisions. Welcome to Capital Convos. In this episode, we had a conversation with Kevin Hines, a data analyst who works at one of the big banks in Barbados. We kicked it off with some backstory from Kevin on how he ended up in data analysis and then went straight off into the relationships data analysis has in the wider economy, especially in the banking sector he works in and how small nations like Barbados and Suriname play their role. Welcome everyone. It's been great to finally get this launched. With none other than someone I met here in Suriname, but he's from Barbados. Uh, When I found out he works at one of the big banks there, immediately, you know, fits our profile. We we should get this guy on. And even though he said here, he'll tell us more about this in in a bit. He's not really that deep into the finance. I think, still think he'll give us unique perspectives on how things are in the Caribbean. Definitely. And compared to the world. So without further ado, Kevin, welcome. Thanks so much, Diego. Thank you so much, Gregory. It is a real pleasure for me to be here. And for me to share with your audience, I know most of you may be from Suriname, but you know, the wider audience across the world, I am really elated to have opportunity. Just share a little bit about myself, about my profession, you know, whatever else I can share, what little bit is about the Caribbean that is so, because the Caribbean is so interesting, whether it is that we're talking about the financial landscape or if we're talking about food or if you're talking about culture, you know, it's always awesome whenever we put the Caribbean inside of it. All right. So let's just get the elephant out of the room. It's mid-February 2021. What's the the COVID situation like in Barbados? Wow, man. It is crazy. I I can tell you this, right? We started out in about, we would have done our first shutdown when when most of the globe would have done that, which would have been Mm -hmm. around late um, March, early, early wow. April. But we did, we did pretty well and we were able to mm-hmm. cut down and hold everything pretty well. We had one, only one person who would have passed, but we had pretty much like single digits for the entire, almost the entire part of uh, 2020. We actually, wow. what we call, we launched something which was a, a passport, you know, where we would give persons a 12-month welcome stamp uh, where they can work. Once they were making over $50,000 US a year, they could come and work from our country because we pretty much had a COVID-free country. Mm. Uh, but as for most small economies, like here in Barbados, we are very much tourists, a tourist destination. You know, going through the whole pandemic period and shutting down, we relied a lot about for um, foreign exchange in order to for us to survive and so we, we had to op- we couldn't close our borders we had to open them and when we opened our borders as a result of that we we were starting to import you know some cases and towards the latter part of the year we and this is this is pretty much in in december we just realized that you know things started to pick up and you know, we started having clusters and then those clusters mm-hmm. uh, started to, people started to get concerned. And over the last, from January till now, we went from one single person dying 
and from single cases of mm-hmm. uh, coronavirus to now, I think I think the last count is like 400 or so active cases, but we have 20, wow. uh, almost 30 persons have died. So that's over mm. 25 persons within the last, within the last month or so. And uh, yeah. so, cause our, our population, you know, number of persons have NCDs, non-communicable diseases, things like hypertension and diabetes. Mm. So a lot of the older persons, they're, they're suffering and we are hoping that we can get it back under control. So we, we've done, a, we were doing a curfew now over the net, over this weekend, it will be, you know, full shutdown, no leaving home. And <laughs> so you have to try to <laughs> try to see how you can, you know, accommodate yourself in, in, in that, but it's, it's quite an experience, but I, I'm, I'm being, be, what, what is really good is that the vaccine is, we now have, we had like a hundred thousand doses that came, were donated from the government of India mm-hmm. recently. So we've started looking at, at that. We look actually is the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, not the new mRNA, but at the same time, it, it, it gives an opportunity for, for us to start to see that trend in terms of people being, you know, terminally, terminally ill. So yeah. those persons to be able to recover if they do catch it or if, if yeah. they are exposed to it. So I'm looking forward to us transitioning into a, a new era and hopefully, you know, towards the last quarter or so of this year, be be back to some semblance of normalcy, like a little bit normal. Yeah. 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 So just for reference, what's the current population of uh, Barbados? We are small. We're yeah. a little tiny dot in the most easterly part of the Caribbean, but 166 square miles of land, we managed to fit almost 300,000 people. <laughs> so Whoa. we are most densely populated countries in the in, in this part of the hemisphere and mm-hmm. definitely definitely in the Caribbean, in the West Indies. We are definitely one of the most densely countries in the world. Per yeah. kilometer, yeah. So do you think, because um, relating this to data and your background, you said you guys did pretty well because island nation covered, surrounded by water, so you have a natural barrier. But once you started... Um, importing the cases, as you said, it propagated exponentially. And that's due to the, you know, the high density of, if I interpret that correctly, the high density of the population per square kilometer. So did you do any analysis on that using your background or could you elaborate on how that may have influenced the behavior of the people once they started seeing the cases rise? Well, I mean, right now is actually quite interesting The and in terms of use of data, right? I, I haven't done any statistical or, or data insights on, on this in particular, in terms of finding out where the clusters are and how, and how, that, is, how that relates to the spread. But I know that we do have data what, from the university. They are actually doing some research right now where they're actually doing a door-to-door and they're going door to door. They're asking those questions to find out. They, they actually have doing a short survey, but it's to pretty much find out if there is any person in the home 
who has any type of symptoms or, or have been exposed in any way. And, and then they're pretty much, when they, when they go back to, when they, they come with iPads, they put the information in that is fed straight to the university. And then there are a number of data scientists and data analysts there who are crunching the information so that they can get more insights on it. And so I am not part of that project, but I, that, that has to be very interesting right now. As it relates to, you know, in terms of density and population density and how we are right now, it's what we are seeing in terms of rising and escalation of cases is is the way in which we interact, you know, very social persons and, and very engaging. If you look at places such as Italy and France, the, where persons are very, they, they're very open and they're very amicable in terms of engaging with others and showing affection. So mm-hmm. when you do that, you know, it, that type of activity is, is not something that you can do now in this environment and, and necessarily get away with it. So yeah. it's something that we need to, that we, we have been advised, you know, to make sure that we stop, you know, we do those things such as putting, keeping on your mask, making sure you wash your hands, you know, and that yeah. you also social distance. That's been drilled in our brains and in our heads over the last few, <laughs> the last few months. And it's something that we are doing and that we were doing okay, but I think that we got complacent because we were, didn't have any cases. So mm-hmm. now we're at a position where, you know, a lot of cases are within the homes. People go out yeah. and they interact and then they come back and it's within the homes. Most yeah. of these cases, they, they rose because as, as Caribbean people, we love to party, we love to interact. So people dropped their guard and things were just seemed as if they were going, you know, like normal. Mm-hmm. And we, we hear this a lot about COVID fatigue. And I think many persons had COVID fatigue and they just yeah. started to interact, they dropped their guard. And then we found ourselves in this in, in this particular predicament. But our prime minister, Mia Motley and, and the rest of the administration, I think that they are trying their best to get a hold on it. There is a there's a you know a communication team in place um, who try to give as, as clear as they give updates as clearly as they can. Yeah, uh, I think that they've been doing a commendable job um, in light of the situation. And, you know, for Barbadians right now, or Bajans, as some people call us, <laughs> that's our colloquial nickname, um, is Barbadians or Bajans. So if you hear me say I'm 100% Bajan, it means that I'm Barbadian and a proud Barbadian at that. Uh, so as Barbadians and Bajans, we are, we are really just need to just navigate this particular part of it and stay stay within our boundaries, listen to, to the government and, and, and follow those protocols. And I think that we will come out on top in the end. Okay, great. Cool. So could you please sketch a picture of what kind of data analysis you do and, and perhaps related to a typical day in the life? of when you go to work, what kind of data do you analyze? Can you please give our listeners a view? Oh, sure, 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 sure. And 
think of it this way. I, when I came out of school, uh, I computer science with a computer science and management degree. I went straight to, to the bank. And but before I went to the bank, I could remember my uncle always told me, Kev, the last time that you'll ever get a real vacation is when you finish school. After that, when you're working, it's not a vacation, right? <laughs> so I, I, what I did is I didn't send out any applications after I finished my, my degree. And I only, so I finished my degree in May and I took that whole three months, you know, June, July, and August, all for myself, go out the beach, enjoy myself. So when August came around, I, I sent, I, sent out applications, the first person who responded to me was my bank, which is CIBC First Caribbean. And from there, I went to, when I went to the interview, they told me that they were, because they were going through an integration period, they were merging two, two um, banks together, two large banks together, two biggest banks in the, in, the, in the Caribbean region at that point in time. And they wanted me, you know, for coverage, at, to be, to work in the branch, you know? So I work in the branch as a teller, you know, counting the money and everything. And I remember, you know, telling them, okay. So they told me that I have to respond, you know, within, within a day. So I can remember going home and I, and I went to my dad and I said, yeah, dad, you know, I, I got this, they, they offered me the position, but I, I don't know if I should take it. I want something in computer science. And he was like, boy, why you, what foolishness you talking? Uh, this is in Beijing colloquial, you know? What foolishness you talking? Say, man, you need to pay, start paying some bills in this house, <laughs> right? So when he said that, you know, it, it didn't end there though. He, he, then, he then told me, you know, the story about the chimney sweeper, you know, no matter what, that chimney sweeper go there and sweep those chimneys like he's never swept them before. And he told me, Kev, smile, be grateful. And whatever you do, do it with excellence, you know? And that was something that's always stuck with me. And in my career, I, I can remember I lasted about eight months in the branch and before being promoted. And since then I, I had a series of promotions. But one of the things that I that really has always been something that I've been happy with a love of mine has been numbers, right? And it is something that it's quite interesting how you're able to communicate and tell a story. I wanna go back a little bit as well in terms of when I was at school. And I remember finishing my community college, I did uh, mass mathematics, physics and information technology mm -hmm. at college. And I had to make a decision as to what is it that I will, you know, do at university and study at university. My mom and I wanted to do computer science and maths because I'm a numbers guy, uh, a semi-geek sometimes. Uh, but they say geeks are cool nowadays, so I, I don't mind too much. <laughs> so my mom told me at the time, Kev, you know, you should probably do something and have a balance. So she recommended, you know, computer science and accounting or computer science and, and management. I didn't really love accounting at the point in time. So I, I went for computer science and management. And I found that 
doing that and taking those subjects, going into the bank, being able to understand the technical side of things and then also mm -hmm. be able to understand the business side of things. It gave yeah. me the ability to have a competitive edge above persons who were just strictly uh, business mm. and those persons who were strictly data analysts. So yeah. business and the data, I, I was able to merge the two and become someone who was able to provide management information, right? And, and that is a completely different to doing data because if someone comes to me and asks me for something, I'm not just going to give them the data. I'm going to look at it, explore, and then provide them insights. Mm -hmm. And in my daily quests, you know, my daily quests, whenever I engage with anyone, and I, in my current position, actually, well, I was recently, I was recently now promoted, but. Congrats. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate that. Because I, I actually won an annual achiever, which is our CEO award last year for the work that I did, which was some of it was analytics as well. Mm -hmm. A lot of it was my analytic work. And what I what I found, you know, was every single time that a senior person came to me, you know, because we as individuals who have gone through university, I tell when whoever is reporting to me, whenever I have direct reports, I always tell them, especially persons who are uh, university graduates, usually all of your, your, your senior executives, you know, your directors, all of them, they have done, they, they have done, they have, they have the experience to do their job, right? But you have been trained to make sure that you can also do their job. So when they come to you and ask you a question, what you need to do is you need to look at it from their perspective, but you need to understand, okay, what is, why is it that they really want this information? If you understand the why, then you can go beyond what their expectations are. Mm -hmm. So for me, whenever I have to deal with a request, persons constantly come for requests to get insights into a particular issue so that they can make a decision. And my job is to make them be able to see how they can make a decision with the information at hand. And if I can make give them that information on one page, so it's how can mm -hmm. I cram such information where it's going to still be at aesthetically appealing to mm -hmm. the view but enough for them to make a decision. And I, I, and it's, and I, I know we were talking a little earlier and before the podcast, but what I'm saying is, it's actually an art. There was actually a book that I, I was recently reading, uh, Functional Art, right? And it's about using the white space and making sure that when persons view your information that, you know, their eyes go and they follow the right you know, path that you want, the journey that you want to, them to go on so that they can find the insights to make the decision that that would give them the opportunity to, to, to be more informed. And I believe that I have, I'm one of those persons who have been gifted with that art and I enjoy it. And that's something that is really for, 
to be in the analytics field, if it is that you do not enjoy it, it will be mm. challenging for you because it can be a very demanding uh, industry and area to be in. But when you are able to put things together, you know, and put charts together and showcase in, insights that no one didn't know really existed, when you can see that, you know, that there is some causation, there's a cause, causality between, you know, two variables that nobody didn't see before you were able to provide that insight, I think is fantastic. So that's my, my yeah. usual day-to-day -day is someone coming to me and saying, and I'm usually a senior executive, you know, saying, Kevin, this is something um, that we need to get more information on. Like somebody is provide, somebody is doing manual wires. We want them to go to digital. Let's see so, who are the industry, who are the countries, and and I will I will provide those insights so that so they can make decisions. Do not cut you off there, but to clarify, yeah. so you you you're not as much engaged with clients as much, but more with the, the internal uh, staff yeah. that you delegate, I guess, yes. the information to? Yes, but I, I actually have had opportunities to engage with clients as well through my analytics um, yeah. and it's through doing designing models that were for new clients that we had to onboard. So because of what, because of their business model, I would have to prepare the business case, uh, understanding what is What's it, what is it that is fundamental about their business and how we can provide a solution for them? Uh, I have had the opportunity to do that. I also had the opportunity to visit Miami, you know, to, to present that model to, to clients as well. And that was something that is not a usual thing for a who is who, who, who deals with data analytics to, to do those mm -hmm. to have type of opportunities. Yeah. Uh, but no, that, he thought that you know, I had the skills necessary and the personnel yeah. to be able to, to deliver that presentation. I think from what I've heard you say, it, I think it's the balance of having this multi arsenal of skills that let you stand out of the rest. And me having a design, well, not a this a formal design background, but I work in the design space. So you mentioning yeah. white space and all this, I, I understand what you say there. And this comes into communication, having these numbers and communicating to a decision maker in the end, right? Exactly. So two parts here, you deep diving into the numbers. You said you, you love the numbers. Have you ever gotten so deep that you lost yourself during an analysis and you were like at a loss for words on how to package this in a digestible way to your manager or to a decision maker? Yeah, so so that's really quite interesting, right? When you're talking about in today's world, every single step that you take, every every time that we speak right now, today, as we engage, we are creating a digital footprint. There's data being captured, right? And all of this is what it amounts to is terabytes and gigabytes, a whole set of bytes of data that needs to be analyzed. In the bank, we have so many data points uh, for every single person and every single company that we engage with in some way. 
the volume of data, we're talking about millions and billions of records, right? So it is very easy to be a little intimidated and to get lost in data, but at the same time, it's about understanding what are the dimensions and what are the measures that you believe are critical for persons to make a decision. When you start off at those points, so your your normal dimension would be, you know, what country are we looking at? What's happening at the country level? What's happening in the particular segment or line of business level? And then what you do is as you do that, you come out and you come out where you can go to the client and what's happening at a client level. So you look at it in different layers. And as you look at it in different layers, then you build that in those insights. I tell persons, I, I, I tell my team, you know, keep it simple. Keep it mm -hmm. simple before you go into the complex areas. And then what you do is as you build your data analytics, as you build your model, start with a simple measures and dimensions initially. But what you will do is you will see anomalies and you will see variances mm -hmm. that you need to investigate further when you build yeah. out those fundamentals. As you move from the fundamentals, because you will get insights, you will see an outlier that you need to investigate. You'll see a cluster that you didn't know was there before. And then, then you expand your analysis. But always yeah. start with fundamentals and start with your core. So you start and you say, okay, how many you know, accounts and what was the what are the balances that we have for this particular country? As you do that, then you realize, okay, who are the top five that are that are doing that are that are contributing to this particular variance or to this particular balance? And when you do those type of analyses, then you you start as you start for the fundamentals, then you can get more elaborative, uh, yeah. or or where it gets a lot more sexy, right? <laughs> uh, as I as I like to call it, right? Because it, it, it goes another it goes into another dimension because yeah. every single time that you build out, even though you have your core mm -hmm. sorted out, you can get more insights as you as you become a lot more creative. And there are so many tools now that are available uh, which allow us to create these insights. And uh, I am I am an analyst, but I, I do computer science, I was in computer science and management. But I'm really more of a business analyst than I would say a core data analyst or data mm -hmm. scientist. I just am I'm technical enough to understand how to make it work. So we now have a lot more tools that are available to us uh, and things like that you can visualize with such as Tableau and, and Power BI. These are tools that before all we had was probably Excel. Right, so now you you can use Python and you can use R and you can use a lot more a lot more programs and and platforms to be able to visualize quickly. One of my favorite tools and uh, you know is 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 a tool called Alteryx, which is the data preparation tool, and mm -hmm. allows you to see your data flow through go through a workflow from end to end and 
it, it's amazing to me the the work that I used to do. You know, that would take me two hours to do. You know, from mm -hmm. a data operation perspective, now you do in in a mere minutes, probably seconds, right? Wow. So this is, and that's the next thing, and that's the beauty about te technology as well. Uh, I tell persons, you know, we, we we cry down a lot of things, you know, like take for instance, people talk a lot about the vaccines and how they were they able to do it so quickly. I tell persons, take a step back, just take one, two, three steps back and think about what you've seen occur over the last two, two decades, right? Now, I want you to think, and that's when we would have had the evolution of, of, of the computer, but I want you to now take a couple more steps back and think about Alexander Graham Bell and when he would have invented the telephone mm -hmm. and how long it took for us to get from that native creation of the telephone to to the to the to our landlines and then think about our grandparents having their landline to when we had cordless phones and think about cordless phones to cell phones the early uh, versions of cell phones and then also think about the 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 evolution of the of the smartphone and how quickly now today those phones just come quickly quickly at, at our fingertips I actually want to yeah. touch on that for a second because the development goes so fast and my concern or my, I guess, thought is can we keep up with the technological development that's going on now? And from the experience of last year having been locked down has accelerated yeah. a lot more things. Things like yeah. this, for example, that people were, you know, negligent or a bit apprehensive to give a try, you know, working remotely, having online conferences, not meeting in person, has forced yeah. people to do this. So in your experience in the banking sector specifically, especially how the economy has been hurt so badly, I'm not sure how it went for the bank being one of the biggest in the Caribbean. How has that affected the bank's operational side and from an economic side as well? So it's, it's been an interesting journey over the, last, over the last year. One of the reasons that I would have had the opportunity to get to be recognized for my efforts last year was because I, I, part, I was one of the persons who, was, who did a lot of the design for, the, for capturing moratoriums for the bank because this is not just here in, in the Caribbean, but you know, worldwide, we, under, we recognize that persons were in a situation where they, they, they were not working, they could not service their loans. And it was regulated by most government agencies that we had to provide moratorium, which is like a payment holiday on your, on your loan for a particular period. And it, obviously this is the, one, of, one of our core ways of, of making revenue is through when persons pay their interest yeah. you know, to, to the bank. So uh, for most banking institutions, once it is that you would have provided a moratorium, you would have pretty much been delaying your 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 revenue, which is the core 
especially for us here in the Caribbean, because we are not as sophisticated as many of those investment banking, you know, investment banks in, in the U.S. On, on Wall Street, et cetera, who have a lot of very sophisticated instruments. You can give them a large set of revenue. Most of our revenue here in the Caribbean is reaped pretty much between the spread for what we pay on deposits and 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 then what we get from from loan interest, right? That that is paid. So when we went on that payment holiday, for most persons, it, it you know we as an organization we were taking that hit in terms of that buffer. But for most large banks, we have the reserves to do so. We unfortunately though it cannot. It's not something that's sustainable, and so therefore the moratorium can only be for a time. I, when I think about how the organization has been for us, you know, personally, I, I, and, and I had the opportunity to meet Diego last year, not last year, a couple of years ago when I was in Suriname. And for me, it, it is, I've, I've been fortunate. I've always been able to work by my boss, my bosses and leaders have given me the opportunity, even though I'm a part of JCI and I travel, I can work when I travel, but that's mm -hmm. me personally, right? It's not something that a lot of persons necessarily had the opportunity to do, but we've had the, we, we've operated with the um, ability to do, you know, to log in via VPN and to assess our networks and to be able to run queries, as I would have indicated earlier, I don't do a lot of customer facing. So yeah. I had the ability to work from wherever I am in the world. So coming into the lockdown, instead of working wherever I was in the world, it, it was me working from home. And I, what our bank did is we actually instituted a, a work from home policy, WFH policy. And where persons had the ability to work from home once they were not, you know, once they were not essential in terms of they had to be customer facing. And what we saw though is, well, for me personally, it's a lot more work. I find that to me, working from home, days merge into each other. So like for instance, I, I, I wouldn't even be able to, I, I know that today is Thursday because I have a meeting, because I had a, had a meeting with you guys, <laughs> with you and Gregory, <laughs> but other than that, I probably would be like, oh, is today Wednesday? Is today Friday? What is What day is today? That is one of the things, uh, one of the issues that uh, you find with this. But it's been, it's been still been a good experience as well. And I've enjoyed the opportunity to work from home, but I, I still am looking forward to the opportunity to socialize and interact with my workmates once again. Yeah. Just one quick example, though, but when you're analyzing the data, how do you separate correlation from causation? Because you get a big pool of data. You don't really know what factors influence each other to get those results. Because the, the classic example is rise in sunglasses typically associated with a rise in, in ice cream sold. But that's because both get sold often during the summer. It doesn't mean that sunglasses and ice cream have a correlation with each other. It's just per chance. So when you yeah. look at the data, it's pretty easy to fall into a trap and then make assumptions that this influences this, 
but it's all based on a faulty assumption to begin with. What are some 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 traps you fall into when analyzing the data? Because you kind of lose the, the relatability because you see everything as numbers and data. Yeah, so Gregory, that, that's a good question, but you kind of answered it already. <laughs> the, way oh. we, the way that we do that, right? Because you're going to see the correlation when you plot those Variable, two variables on, on, on the S and Y axis, you're going to see mm -hmm. the correlation from that straight line, which is going to be interpreted. And you will see those cluster around the line, those clusters around the line. And all that does is it just lets you know, okay, there is a correlation. Yeah. Uh, causations are a little different. And, and the causations come from you not just taking the quantitative side of it, but you have to understand the qualitative side of the data as well. You need to mm -hmm. put your intuition into it, right? Mm -hmm. Not just, So you ask the questions, you ask persons who know the business, you ask persons who, who are experienced with it within that um, particular product, right? And who understand the industry. And But those things still allow you to ask questions. So when you see that something has a correlation, it allows you to ask questions so that you could dig deeper for more insights. Causation mm -hmm. is, is actually quite interesting because sometimes causation, you can see a leading indicator, right? Or a trailing indicator where yeah. uh, when you look at, and that's why I, one of my, I am, I'm very, very simplistic. Uh, or I, I try to be very, to keep it very simple when I'm dealing with analytics and my go-to, my go-to graphs nearly all the time, it's going to be a bar chart. It's going to be a line graph in terms of trend. So I can do a trend analysis. It's going to be a, a cluster graph. We're going to put variables on each side and, and probably include an additional variable just to see how, how large that, that particular cluster is on, on a particular graph. And I also, I also have a appreciation for donut charts and those those are my graphs so i i try i don't really use a lot more graphs to make things complicated i try mm -hmm. to keep it full because i believe that those are graphs that people don't have to ask too many too many questions about uh, and yeah the line by the line graph uh, you know when you can plot two variables and see what is happening for those variables over a period of time, right? And you can plot a time series graph and see, was sometimes you can actually see when something goes up, like, like for instance, we could we could see without, without a doubt that what happened in, in March from the lockdown, we could mm -hmm. see a, a big drop in the number of transactions that would have happened in the bank, but we know what caused it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you're aware of those things, but the data may not tell you that, you know, you may, you may, well, we will be able to find out those data points, you know, later on, you might have certain data points to say this particular catastrophe or, or crisis would have occurred. And therefore so that, cause this but it, it it comes with you understanding the data you interacting with there's finding out the history that lends a lot to you being able to give a definitive outlook as to what is causation and what mm -hmm. is correlation 
Yeah. So to sum it up, the causation and correlation story, to my understanding at least, the quantitative side is more the correlative correlation, and that gives you an indicator to ask deeper questions, and yeah. then you step over to the qualitative side and do not the number analysis, but more like cause and uh, reaction analysis. Causation never, don't make the assumption that correlation is causation. Yeah, right? okay. yeah that's clear. You need to understand. And, and causation could be a single event, right? And so something could have caused something because it was a single event. And it, it ended up being a ripple effect. You throw a rock in the in the ocean, it ripples, it, you know, and it's, so that's kind of what happened with, with the GameStop yeah. story that <laughs> happened recently, like the, that little cost a whole huge ripple in the whole market. Exactly. So you, you mentioned something interesting there that um, here in the Caribbean and also the bank you work with, the instruments we use here in this region are not as sophisticated as those as in New York, Wall Street. So yeah. if, if we had to compare those from a data perspective and the instruments we use, how would you, I guess, if you had to paint that picture, how would we rank up to, to those big dogs in the oh. Caribbean or how would we be able to eat at the same table in, in, in a sense? So one of the issues that we have here in the Caribbean is in our, our our markets, uh, especially our secondary markets, you know, are, well, here in Barbados, we have literally no secondary market. It's pretty stagnant, you know, in terms of stocks and those trading is, is very, we don't, we don't have a very liquid market. Same here. Jamaica, Same yeah, Jamaica is pretty okay. Mm -hmm. They do have an active market, but Trinidad, Trinidad is better than Barbados, but we are not, we are nowhere in terms of, you know, like the New York Stock Exchange and in terms of the different NASDAQ, Dow, those different options that they have. And then they, a number of sophisticated products that come on stream that are, is actually what we ended up seeing cause the, the bubble and then the, the big crash with those credit default swaps mm -hmm. uh, in 2008. You know, so people having the ability to do options and, and different derivatives, but all of those are very risky. But the thing about risk is that risk, a certain level of risk can give you a significant level of return. Yes. Uh, here in, in the Caribbean, we do not participate. We don't have the, those type of markets. We don't have those type of instruments available for people to invest in. And hence, you know, we are more dependent on more traditional forms of banking and financing. And that's, that's kind of the reason that you would find that we don't, that if something happens, you know, such as this, it, it will put a dent. We actually see it within our, within our balance sheets and on our, our P&Ls. You would... If you look at, at what has happened uh, in, in the U.S., for instance, uh, they've gone through a pandemic, but yet still their stock markets are striving. You still see companies, uh, especially, you know, tech companies, the Amazons and the Googles, still finding out that, you know, they're still rising in terms of their, 
their, their market capitalization and, and, and their market growth. So all of these are things that we see constantly happen, you know, when we look at when we look up north or we look to the east, probably to, to the western side uh, of the world as well. All of those things are those are all things that you know allow them to have, I would say, more opportunities than we would from in terms of financial opportunities than we would here uh, in the Caribbean. And I, and I don't think it's just here, but it's also there in Suriname and across the Caribbean and, and many parts of, of the of developing world. One thing I, I am really curious about, because I have a bit of a history in, in trading, I would say trading, designing trading systems. And okay. one, one common issue you get is that as your systems get more and more, I wouldn't say intense, but complex, as they become more complex, they start to get inherently more fragile. They don't work as well as you want them to work, which means that as your data becomes more and more complex, you start losing touch of reality. Do you have that issue as well when you're analyzing data? Because when you combine, you can perhaps combine three or four factors and get a really good picture of reality. But as soon as you get a hundred different factors, it starts getting a little bit messy and it starts getting, it starts getting messier and messier with when it's not even reality anymore. Is that something you guys deal with as well on a daily basis? Where do you cut the line? That's why that's why they pay actuaries and economists a lot of money. You have to design models which are going to be robust enough to make mm -hmm. sure that those things don't collapse, right? So a model needs to to be able to be reliable and to be able to, you know, withstand all 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 tests. And that's mm -hmm. why it's for a lot of trust testing and it's it's one of the risks that you have sometimes, but the deeper and deeper that you get into to the layers of, of analysis, it the complexity is there, but once you stick to the fundamentals, then you can you can do it successfully, right? But the complexity of models and making sure that they're derived and they come out right and on top, that's why you pay actors a lot of money. That's why you pay economists a lot of money because they need to do the economic tricks modeling to to make sure that when they when they when they you know churn out a report all of the inputs all the variables are all accounted for yeah. and that complexity can be defined so that anybody who has to review and who has to audit it will mm -hmm. understand how they would have arrived at whatever figure they would have come but is that something you also do working alongside these economists to I, I do, present I do, the model, I guess? I do a bit of modeling, but I am, I wouldn't call myself an economist and I wouldn't call, call myself an actuary, but I would design models, you know, for, for predictive to probably look at behavior and, and see what, based on what the trends that we are seeing, what do we expect to see in three months in, in for the next fiscal, right? So you do projections mm -hmm. based on your pipeline, based on how things are in the market, then you do discount factors and you do scenario analyses, you mm -hmm. know? So what's your best case? What's your worst case scenario? 
based on these particular variables. Those are things that you would use, types of models that you would use. And most of these models come based on, you know, interaction with, with the, if your directors, interaction with persons who understand the market, but also mm -hmm. what you do is you also need to look and see historically, what are the trends that would have been, would have been happening in the past. And based, usually your past is, it pretty much, you know, allows you to predict your future. And that's the way that, you know, I, I usually look at information. That's why I like to look at trend, trend graphs and look at time series and try to see what is really happening. Do we have seasonal seasonality within the data? Is it every month that we see, you know, every January, do we see certain things happen in this particular season? Every mm -hmm. light, like for instance, here in Barbados, the best time to come to Barbados is during July and August. That's because it's our carnival season. It's mm -hmm. our yeah. season. And, and that is where you will find a lot of people, you know, they come in over and they're enjoying ourselves. So therefore we're going to have a spike uh, in, in, so, in tourist activity. So yeah. So now, now we got an anomaly with the pandemic and looking yeah. at history, seasonal data, it's not really something maybe you could predict it, but we're in a situation now that's, kind of unprecedented, having yeah. the whole world locked down, cut from yeah. tourists and everything. So in these unknown waters, how does your current prediction models or what do you see projected happening in the next six months, one year, or maybe even five years, if you can make yeah. assumptions? So, we will make assumptions now. We can't really predict, but yeah. the trends so you're seeing the world go to. Five years is a long projection, right? I I tell what I would usually tell my my persons in JCI. I, I tell them this most of the time, right? Plan your life in pencil, because life will reveal itself in pen, right? Mm. And that's what I tell them. And the reality is that we don't know, but we need to still plan, right? We don't know how it's going to be, but what we have seen here, what I have seen in my in most of my analyses from the bank is once we've come out of the pandemic of a particular lockdown period in a particular country, what you would do is you'll see it, see, you'll see the fall in the, during the lockdown. And once you recover, you're, you've been seeing spikes and it's reflecting similar to what you have had previously. But we're still in we're still in the pandemic. Remember, we haven't really come out of it. So everything mm -hmm. is lower in terms of activity than it was before. But at the same time, I believe this is and this is based on my reading as well as because you need to keep on reading, especially as an analyst. You need to not just look at what's happening within your space, but you need to look at what is happening across the world. Uh, right now, the world is a very small place so we can take one step and go to the us one step to go to australia once because we are so connected like one step and i'm in Suriname. you know we are so connected so because of that we need to make sure that we plan and we need to understand what it is that we are doing so that in the end no matter what the projections that are made 
we understand how all of these links are happening. So when I think and I look forward, based on the different research, it looks as though we are going to be in this type of environment for at least another six months to the end of the year. But because of the arrival of the vaccine, we can hope that we can have a quicker run towards herd immunity. When we get to that point where persons are not as apprehensive about engaging with another, when we get to a point where we can socialize with others more, then I think that we will start to see ourselves go back to normalcy. We still have to plan, but we need to understand that because much of this has been unprecedented in our era, the last time that this would have happened would have been in 1918 to 1920, right? Many persons who are on the earth today have never experienced anything like this. And those who are on the earth that have experienced something like this were too young to really understand what was happening at the point in time. So for us right now, it is a learning period and, it, and we are learning quickly. So what we will do is we will continue to plan, but we will plan with the understanding that sometimes we are going to need to take that eraser and erase our plans based on what we see comes to a reality. But I believe that human beings are very much, you know, we, we follow patterns and that is why we can analyze. And mm -hmm. that is why there are things such as correlations and causations, because we follow patterns. The majority of people who are doctors are going to do what doctors do. The majority of people who are lawyers are going to do what lawyers do. The majority of people who are large uh, conglomerates are going to do what large conglomerates do. And those who are retailers are going to do what retailers do. So you can follow those patterns and you can build out analyses based on those patterns and understanding of the models that the business models for, for those organizations and the, the culture and the, the, the characteristics of certain professions and persons as well. Could you talk a bit about the importance of security nowadays? With you say everything leaves a digital footprint, and yeah. you also did mention that the, the technology hasn't scaled as much as you would like, or perhaps that the the back office just hasn't scaled as much as the front office had. So has the security scaled as much as the data has? Are there still significant dangers? You think is our data even safe? Well, I mean, I work at a bank, so we have no choice but to keep up front with security. It is, that's paramount. You need to make sure that person, persons are trusting you with their funds, with their livelihood. You know, the, the risk of, of us having a security breach is always something that we try to stay ahead of, whether mm -hmm. it's front office or back office. You know, I, I don't work in that particular field, but there, there are so many different encryption technologies now today. Like for me, for instance, I, I can't even, you know, just log in with just two-factor authentication. Now you have multi-factor authentication. You have a token, you have your password, you have your phone. All of these wow. are things that are needed for you to make access at certain points in time, right, to, to log into the network. Security is always front of mind whenever you're 
with any financial institution. So it's not just my my bank or my my employer that that would do this, but we we are always at risk. We we try to put the protocols in place. We have an operational risks, and you know, department who also try to make sure that they mitigate any internal infractions. Mm. As well as we have our technology info, information security department that will make sure that we we mitigate any risk in terms of people coming in and being able to access our particular platform. So this is a is a battle that's always you know always has to be in, in place because persons are becoming more and more sophisticated because of the tools that they have available to them. Hacking mm-hmm. is now can be a profession. You know, mm-hmm. and some people had it as a hobby now. People, you know, use it as a profession to to be able to understand how they can get into systems, etc. So all of these are things that you have to work with. So security is always top of mind. And mm-hmm. it's, it's even top of mind when we think about just in terms of our social media uh, platforms and how we access those now. You know, in some instances, we have our phones, but it's not just, we don't just access our phones by just putting in a password anymore. We now have face recognition. We have fingerprint, you know, all of these things that we can tie those to different applications that we want to get into before we can access them. So it's all, it's constantly evolving. I believe that most financial institutions try to be at the forefront because mm-hmm. they have to protect not just your money, but they also need to protect your data. Yeah. Speaking of the security and yeah, it's a must for a financial institution to be that level. So then comes the question on how investors see this because once you got that in place. So I'm curious to know how the situation is with foreign investors in Barbados because for Suriname, for example, most investors and locally the people are pretty risk averse. So there, there's this constant, you know, tug of war on how to get investors here, but then the policymakers here don't want to place these policies or instruments in place that would cover these risks or securities. How is the situation in Barbados regarding that foreign investors? Similar to Suriname, I believe we we are very dependent on foreign foreign direct investment. That's pretty much our livelihood our livelihood in order for us to maintain our, our peg to the U.S. dollar. We, we have a fixed peg, currency peg to the U.S. dollar. It's been two to one for, I think, from the 1970s, I think it was. And so that is something that we do our ultimate utmost to try to maintain. We do try to encourage foreign direct investment into our country. There is some apprehension apprehension sometimes, but government has been doing their best to break down the, the different barriers to entry. But there's still there's still gonna be some barriers to entry because we're in a democratic environment. People do have apprehensions to persons coming in and you know doing something where they, they don't agree with. They could think that, you know, it it'd probably be a loss of jobs. Sometimes it although it may be more jobs. We, we have a number of hotels, you know, that, that we are trying to attract now as well. And when these type of large 
organizations, large hotel chains, you know, come and invest into your into your economy. It, what it does is it it creates reserves, and our mm-hmm. foreign reserves are are needed because we are we we are really net importers. We import everything. We are not able to. We don't manufacture and export anything of real substance that that persons are able to to you know that are able to make a, a serious dent in our in our GDP, right? So yeah. because of that, we have situations where we we need our we need our our our, our very best to be able to identify ways in which we can have influx, and that influx usually comes from large companies from all across the world being able to come into our our environment. Unfortunately, from a liquidity perspective, as I had indicated earlier, we don't have much in terms of secondary market. So, mm-hmm. so it is is unfortunate that you know it, when these companies do come, that it that we don't have a creative model where you know they when they do come that they need to put some amount of shares on 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 the on the local stock exchange and allow mm-hmm. locals to invest into those into the ownership of the of the of those organizations as they come in but we have a we have a pretty robust i don't know how robust it would be now because i think that the last administration a lot of a lot of offshore companies exited but mm-hmm. we we still need those people and it will be great if when they come in that we were able to do to have some type of investment because then i think locals will be like okay you know we are not as apprehensive but everybody is 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 kind because they don't understand money sometimes mm-hmm. i mean i am not going to say that i am a i understand everything to do with money but yeah i think i I'll probably be more money savvy than the average joe yeah. and but the, the average person is is a little apprehensive they they want to make sure that when they have their money you know that when they when they go and they look at their hundred dollars that they depart that they place there you know five years ago that mm-hmm. they they don't see you know that that hundred dollars still being a hundred dollars or yeah. that is no decreased right so that's there's that, there's that fear of loss and but overall i think that people on a whole are it is going to get to a point where we have to engage more is i think it's kind of unfortunate what i've been seeing on the international front in terms of people being a lot more nationalistic and mm-hmm. and 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 not being open to globalization we you see what happened with Brexit. We see what happened in the U.S. in terms of making America great again. The, these type of nationalistic disclosures are, are uh, and chants are are not not going to be great for everyone, especially for, well for small com- small economies like ours. We kind of need the the investment to come our way uh, yeah. because it, it helps to bring us out of. It has brought us out of poverty in a lot of senses, and that that type of investment is, is something that we appreciate. Where foreign companies can come, they can 
hires, we speak English here mm -hmm. in Barbados very well. We understand that international global language, which is an asset for us. We are educated. Our, our first prime minister, one of the things that he will always be renowned for is the fact that he opened up us to every child in Barbados has the ability to have, you know, free education. And that is mm. up to university level. So uh -huh. we are we have an opportunity to be educated, educated workforce that is attractive to foreign direct invest investors. And we need to yeah. take advantage of that. Right. So right. so uh, in the end I, I think that we as as a people, they there will always be a level of apprehension. But mm -hmm. we need to understand that there's a reason for globalization, which shares ideas, yeah. shares technologies, which yeah. allows us to find opportunities. And we need to think of it as more an opportunity for us to make the world a better place than for yeah. us to just look inside at our own, you know, in our own sphere, our own environment, our own country. And, yeah. and not think a little bigger. Right now, the world is our marketplace. The world is our home. We are all brothers and sisters in this environment, and we need to learn to find a way to shield. And yeah. it's, I think that's actually one of the things, I don't know how it's going to happen, but it it kind of upsets me sometimes, you know, when I look at the disparity in terms of persons who are rich, the richer, that top 1% getting so rich and richer. And not finding the opportunity to be able to make sure that we can still bring others out of poverty because they have the capacity to do so. I know yeah. it's not, not about giving people handouts, but it's about understanding that there are people out there who are seriously impoverished. What can we do to make sure that we help them to rise up out of this poverty? We have the Sustainable Development Goals that the, all of the world would have, you know, signed on to in 2015. What can we do to make sure that persons, that we fulfill all of those goals by 2030? What type of money can we pump into that? Who can the 1% help us to, to, get, to get there a lot quicker than, than, we were be, than we were making progress before? The question yeah. is here, and, and I'd yeah. like to progress. Yeah, SDGs are definitely something that's a whole different topic that can be covered and from so many angles and lots of yeah interesting stuff there too. But in essence, um, what you're saying is that we we as a small nations are really dependent on in international investments, especially because we're we more are. import based. So the approach would be to find a creative way to let the local communities or local community local people be part of that investment and that's the the gap that needs to be bridged in a sense to yep. play in, in that market but i think rex has uh, one more thing he wants to challenge you with before we close off typically our last question is is a bit of a game just to, just to see how your thought process works when you're put under pressure so let's let this is a small game don't worry no no pressure all right so let's just say it's supposed to see how i work under pressure but no pressure it's okay. oh 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 that's a paradox yeah yeah you're absolutely right 
Okay, so we we just thought of a simple example. Let's just say you you work for a pension fund, yes. and let's say we've noticed that people live a lot longer than they used to. Like usually they they live about eighty five or plus, and yeah. your business model uh, you collect a premium until retirement age, which is usually between 60 and 65, but now they're living a lot longer. So your business model is a bit flawed. You start yeah. to notice that in the data. What, and you're the first person to notice that because you're the data analyst. How do you assess the data? How do you bring it to your management and what kind of solutions could you provide them as, as just a, a starting ground? All right, so that, that's actually, quite interesting. It's not something that I have actually uh, seen before, but it's, it's data. So the first, the first thing about it is that once you see those insights, you need to find out, you, you, you want to find why, right? And, and that's, that will be a real critical thing to find out exactly why is this happening? And, and one of the things as it relates to demographics and as it relates to longevity, a lot of, it, a lot of that has to do with healthcare, right? And you put in things in place. So what we would have seen in, here in Barbados in the, in the 1940s, if you were born in the 1940s, your life expectancy was about 55 or so. But as we became a lot more developed and as we start to put vaccines in place and, and increase our um, health care. We're now at a position where our life expectancy today is, is almost 80, right? By 80 for women and probably like 70, very late 70s for men. So that, that type of, you know, being able to see, you, you need to be able to tell that story, right? And if you're able to tell that story, what that tells you is that there's, there's been a trend. So if you can see that there has been a trend in terms of longevity, as it relates to healthcare, as it relates to the number of, as it relates to development, right? Those are factors that influence the longevity of a person. So what you will do is, or, or the way that I will handle it is I am, I'm looking to tell this story. So you don't just throw information, but you tell the story and you set the, you set the, the mood or you, 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 you show persons exactly how things are. So I would show that story of how we have progressed as we became more developed, as we became a richer nation, as more people had different, you know, certain values, then this was the result in terms of longevity. So if that is the result for longevity, these are the projections that we expect for, for persons X amount of years from now. Mm -hmm. So when you, when you say that, then what, because what you need to do is you need to have assumptions that are solid and that are backed by facts so that people understand the journey that you're carrying them. So after putting them on that journey, it sets the, the, the narrative now for what I will communicate. So I will, I will have that as my initial view, but then I will show also, and I'll layer on top of it, where we are today in terms of our current position. Doing a scenario analysis, 
and you're going to say your best worst case and your 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 current scenario, right? So you're going to go your with your best case. Suppose this was supposed to happen, and then you're going to go worst case. But also suppose this was supposed to happen, and then you're going to go also your current case. But suppose we stay on a current trend. You put those things in into perspective. But one of the key things that always drives a decision is also going to be the money involved. So you look at the cost. You look at what is the impact of this. You need to understand that in the end, most organizations, you know, they are looking to see what is their bottom line. So you always look and say, okay, what's the impact that this is going to have? And you show those scenarios so that in the end, it's not necessarily that you are making the decision, but you will be taking them on a journey to let them understand why you are making a specific recommendation. And once you are able to do that and take them on that journey from end to end, then more than likely they will be more accepting of your recommendation and what your insights have provided. I hope that kind of answers the question. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You took us on the ride. Exactly. You you see the data, you know, you immediately assumed that this was because of healthcare, life expectancy has increased, quality of life has increased, and then how you would begin to analyze that, bring it to the upper management and how you can go further from there. Because I imagine it's it's a pretty actual case right now for a lot of pension companies, how, how to deal with that. So uh, Probably have that. That, that yeah. is probably a real situation for them. It's not one for me right now in my environment, but that is probably something that some actuaries are looking at. It is, it is, but it has been a case now for quite a while. Even, even when you look at your, in, for your um, national, for, for us, we have our national um, contributions, which we call our NIS, we do the employment contributions you know, for retirement and most of us, mm -hmm. we would say 65. But yeah. with technology and with improvements in healthcare, persons are living longer. They're being held there. You'll find that somebody who is 60 today is not, they don't experience the same sort of health concerns that they probably would have been if they were 60, 30, 40 years ago. We're finding cures for different diseases or we are finding ways in which you can live with certain diseases longer. Right now, we, we can say like 40 years from now, 50 years from now, we, we probably are, probably could still do a podcast and still have, you know, an interaction because we are still there. We, we probably might yeah. be in our own case, in our own way, youthful at heart, right? And Definitely. we probably have no ailments, you know, because of the improvements that have happened. So. These are all things that we have to look forward to. The average age by that time might be a hundred and it may be a way in which they can, that we can live, you know, to a hundred without, you know, any severe or negative side effects. I, I think that somebody had done an analysis and they had a plateau, you know, of what's the maximum it can be, you know. So that's a worst case scenario, yeah. right? Yeah, and, I can't yeah, I, what it was, but yeah. I think that's a really nice approach to, especially going to your manager and the decision makers. And I think you 
picked out some key uh, factors there that the money part, worst case scenario, best case scenario, are factors that you re really need to take into consideration aside from telling the story, because that is what drives decisions in the end. And yeah, that's a good way to wrap up this episode. We, we want to thank you, Kevin, for giving us a perspective on, you know, how even from a banking perspective, but how this affects other areas in the community as well. So appreciate you taking the time to share this with us from a common Caribbean country that's maybe not so different from our situation. So any final thoughts, Greg, before we end off and Oh no, I, I've learned a lot. I'm just really grateful Kevin was here to share his insights with us. And uh, it's not it's not typical that you get to talk to someone from Barbados who who has a similar life experience and ha deals with the same issues that we are dealing with over here. Except for COVID, we're all we're all sharing that misery. Yeah. Awesome! Thanks for listening, everybody, and we shall see you in the next Capital Convos.